0: Well, this Christmas season, we have been in Matthew's gospel looking at this theme of a weary world rejoicing. Uh, the idea is that even in the midst of the weariness of our world, uh, we can rejoice. Even in the weariness, I'm thinking this morning, I was like, I couldn't help but just think of a certain basketball game yesterday that just captures the weariness of this world. Uh, even in the weariness of such basketball games, uh, we can rejoice. And uh, we looked at first uh, just the story, the weary world story that we find ourselves in. Uh, we looked at the genealogy in chapter 1 of Matthew and, and how it captures in Israel's tragedy. It parallels and captures the, really the, the arc of human history, uh, that this is a weary story that we find ourselves in. And last week we saw with Jesus entering the stage, we, we saw what it looks like to wait, that, that this, there's this life. That is being presented to us, offered to us in Christ. And, and what does it look like to wait on, upon God, to hope in God, to find life in Him? And, and that's where we come to this morning, uh, where a weary world begins to search. That there's something in, in our souls where we are drawn to this, this life, this joy. Call it some just transcendent thing that we're after. Something better, something higher, something greater, something deeper, Something eternal that we're all after, that we're all hungering for. In fact, as this scene here in chapter 2 opens, it, it emphasizes a few new characters who we haven't seen before. It says that, first, these were the days of Herod the king, and we're going to come back to Herod. But these are the days of the, the, ruler, or the rulership of the reign of Herod the great. We're going to see that he's a ruthless leader, that he captures the reign, the tyranny of this this restless and this difficult age, this weary age. But but then we we have these these men, these guys who enter the narrative, and they're kind of mysterious. It, It says, behold, so these are the days of Herod the king, then behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, I'm I've learned over the years, whenever I read the word behold, I actually in my mind will say this weird phrase because it causes me to catch, because I think the Bible often will emphasize, like, behold, something is happening here. And I usually think in my mind, like, looky, looky here. Like, it's almost, it's like, like, behold, it's the days of, but looky, looky here. Look who entered the narrative. Like, and so there are these mysterious men who enter the narrative. And I say mysterious because here it's translated in, in, the, in our, our version as wise men, the Greek term is magos. And magos is normally transliterated into English as magi. And, and so, wise men, magi, it's the same word. And, and the reason why there's kind of, there are different ways of putting it is no one really knows a ton about these men. Now, what we do know, though, is rather interesting because these men are most likely pagan priests, What we do know is there are pagan priests who would have practiced divination, who would have practiced blood sacrifices, who would have practiced astrology, all all kinds of things that in the Old Testament would have been absolutely forbidden. Now, what's even more ironic is that what we're pretty sure is that these men are not only pagan priests, but they're also specifically from Babylon, and, and that's ironic because if you remember in the genealogy in chapter 1, it said that that was the place of deportation, of, of essentially spiritual death, of spiritual banishment for Israel. And now these pagan priests from this place are being drawn by Jesus, and they're coming to him. So we don't know much about these men. I mean, they're, we know that they're not, they're not Jewish people, We're, but at the same time, it's like, how should we think about it? Like I always, it In my mind, it was like, these are kind of guys strangely dressed like, right? Like some guys from like a Harry Potter convention, like, you know, playing cosplay or something. Like, I didn't really know how to think about these men. But what we have, the reason why they're here is because what these men capture is a world. A world that is searching. A world that finds itself in a place of darkness, in a place of weariness, that's searching for that life, searching for that joy. And in fact, one of the things we've seen so far is that in the, with, as Jesus is presented in chapter one, is that Jesus is the desire of nations, that Jesus is the, the blessing that God wants to bring into the world to, to give that life, to give that joy. He's where it is ultimately found. And so what we're going to see in these magi, we're going to see people who are searching who find that joy. Now, I, I, know, I don't know where you're coming from. But one thing I know for sure is that this search, this quest, is something that is real for every human being, and it has been since time began. That we're all in this search for that transcendent something, that more, that life, that joy. And so we might be coming from more like the ancients, Augustine, who we've, we've quoted this line several times, but Augustine, who was a fourth-century church father, would say, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you. Speaking of God, it was a prayer. And, and perhaps you're in a place where you say, yes, I'm restless because my heart is restless and I sense that there's something more in God, in Jesus Christ, that I'm, I'm after. But then maybe you're more of the modern mindset. Where it doesn't, it's not articulated in that way where it's like, yes, I know that I'm searching for something in God, but instead more the modern mindset is one of my favorite novelists. He's a British novelist, Julian Barnes, he, uh, his autobiography where he talks about actually going from an atheist to a, an agnostic. It's called Nothing be Frightened of. It opens with these words. He says, I, uh, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And perhaps you're in that place where deep down, you know, like maybe I don't believe in God, I intellectually I'm not there, but at the same time, there's something in me that is just like this magnet that's pulling me somewhere to something higher, to something more. And materially, I can't explain it, but I know there's something there. What I would submit to you is that this morning, what we're going to see here, what Matthew is presenting to us in this part of the narrative. He's presenting this is the hope of the entire world. This is the place where that joy is found, and it's focused here on this one who's going to be found in this manger. And so what we're going to look at this morning, first, essentially, joy. What, what is it? What is this thing we call, I'm, I'm putting it under the category of joy, what is this thing that we're after? And then second, we're going to be looking at what are the, how do we get it? What are the mistaken ways we do it? And and what's the way that we find that joy? And so, we're going to look at first what the star reveals about the nature of joy. And then second and third, as far as how do we get it, the path of Herod and the path of the Magi. We're going to follow them and see how they try to find this joy and what we can learn from them. So, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for these truths. And Lord, we just ask you to guide us. Lord, we We all have this sense of that something, that more, that sublime, that whatever term we might want to put to it, Lord, something that calls us, that pulls us, that beckons us. And Lord, perhaps, perhaps here in Jesus we find what we are looking for. Lord, you say this, he is the desire of nations. He is the one our hearts long for. And so, Lord, would you, wherever we're coming from this morning, would you point our hearts to see Christ? Would you help us to see him for who he truly is, the significance of him? And will we find our joy in you and him? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things uh, that's always interesting for me every year as I come back to kind of like Advent season, Christmas season, and I'm going through the birth narratives, is I'm always reminded of how I didn't grow up in church, Um, and so... I I didn't really become a Christian until college. And so I I didn't, all these stories were always kind of distant, right? Like there were little snippets from like a Hallmark movie over here, a Hallmark card over here, kind of like just weird, you know, even when I was growing up in like public school, you would sing the Christmas songs kind of. And so I'd hear these different details and I'd hear, you know, like the Charlie Brown Christmas part of Luke when they read it. And that's all the exposure I had. And I remember I always had this question because all the details were kind of vague to me. And this question I always had was, why a star? Like, why why is there a star here in this narrative? What's the significance of the star? And and then after that, another question I always had was, why if these are, this is like the king, and there are all these people in charge right here, why are they, when they hear about the birth of this baby, and they hear, oh, he's going to be a king, all this, but why are they, when they hear about a star, why are they so insecure and threatened? Like, why is that? Look at, I want to just, let's read 1 through 4 again, just to frame this. Because it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, looky, looky, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So again, why are they? What's the significance of the star? Why is this included, and, and why all of this insecurity? Um, in the ancient world, there there were there was great significance ascribed to any kind of like a cosmic event, a celestial event, uh, and and so often the way the best way I can put it is it was as if there was like divine affirmation of someone or some event or something that was going on on earth. In other words, over the canopy, over this person or an event of what was happening, there was this sign from the heavens, like a stamp of approval, a vote of confidence, The the gods of the the sky, however they would have been interpreting it, they would have been saying, they approve of this one, their significance. Now, this wasn't just an ancient thing. This is still to modern times. In fact, 1909... uh, In his autobiography, Mark Twain, always a fun quote, uh, said this. He said, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. So he was born when Halley's Comet uh, was above, circling around, above. It is coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Halley's Comet. The Almighty has said, no doubt. Now, here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together, right? And so he writes this kind of jokingly. Well, here's the thing. He did die the next year. And he died in 1910, and he died the day after. And I don't, I'm, I'm not an astronomer, so I don't know the terms, but like right the day after it reached its apex, like whatever, it's some P word, like peripheral or something. But it, the day after Halley's Comet circled back around and it did that, and what happened was all across the country, everyone were issuing editorials saying, look at this like divine, this divine affirmation. This, this heavenly affirmation that this man was, in fact, this great man. Now, we all know Mark Twain's reputation. He was a great writer, all that, cultural critic and whatnot. But he, they said this is like this divine sign that there's something significant in this person. So even until our modern days, there's this idea that if something happens in the heavens, there is this, it's this divine stamp of approval. Now, what we're going to come back to is what's interesting here is that this divine stamp of approval, this divine affirmation is happening for Jesus and it's not happening for the other people. And that's going to cause some of the issues here. We'll come back to that. But before we move on to that, one of the things is this isn't just merely some pre-modern superstition, right? We don't have to throw it away, something like that, and explain it away that way. There's something deeply biblical here that captures the nature of joy, and it has everything to do with the star, Uh, In other words, there's a reason why God chose a star to be the messenger, to be the harbinger of Jesus coming into the world. If you think about it, why didn't God just, like, as he always had, why didn't he just have a prophet? He's going to have John the Baptist born and telling of Jesus. Why didn't he just have someone telling them about Jesus? Is the star merely just essentially some, like, uh, navigational point in the sky? What's the significance of the star? Why does God use this star. It seems he's signaling something. One of the interesting things, we, we've talked about this, I know if you come to Anthem you've heard this before, but it is at the core of again and again what we see in Scripture. The whole point of the Bible, the whole heart, like the pulsating center of Christianity the story from the of the Bible, from Genesis one, to Revelation twenty two, is this idea that God is joy and delight in and of Himself. Uh, the way we put this before time began, God existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect delight, in perfect fellowship. The Bible talks about His love. John one or First John four says that God is love. It doesn't say love is God, but God is love. God defines what love is. In other words, love is not some sentiment. Joy is not some sentiment. Uh, Holiness and glory. These are not just some abstract ideas we created. They are realities that are found in God himself. So from eternity past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God is love and God is delighting in himself and God is glorying in himself. And so the father's delighting in the son, the son's delighting in the father and the triune God is this community of perfect delight and perfect love. It's an amazing mind-blowing picture. Now, what God does is God doesn't just at some point go, well, I'm lonely, nor does he need to like self-actualize in some way by, by expressing himself. Instead, what God does, just you could, we've said just like any, any artist would, is God overflows with that delight in himself, and he expresses it, and he creates the masterpiece we call the cosmos he creates this masterpiece of this theater of glory and he in it he he kind of imbues it he hardwires it with things that reflect or proclaim who he is and so the heavens, it says in Psalm 19:1, declare the glory of God. They proclaim, they pour forth speech. In other words, everything, when you see the planets and you see the stars and you see plants and you see oceans and you see mountains with the sun setting on them and the sun rising every day, you say, my God is faithful like that. The creator is huge and immense like that. He's down to the intricate details. He's beyond what our minds can grasp, that that is the God who created our universe and the universe is constant constantly proclaiming that. And then what God does, this is this theater of glory, this theater of of just delight. And what God does, creating us in his image as human beings, is he hardwires us with the ability, he puts us in creation and says, I want you to relate to me. You have the unique capacity to join in that delight. You have the unique capacity to walk with me, to know me, to delight in me, to cultivate, take the raw things of creation and cultivate them to my glory, to to all these things to be further delighting with me. That's life with God. And so the picture that we have biblically is that we're invited into that delight. And so it's this this delight that is at both kind of reciprocal where it's like we delight in God and we know God, but then also there's this sense which God is delighting in us and there's this, this just picture of delight and joy that's shared and so, what's interesting is God here in using the heavens to both declare his delight. So, God's declaring, this is my son, right, who I'm, I delight in. We're going to come back to that. The heavens are declaring something. They're pouring forth speech. But then at the same time, the star provokes a sense of longing, a sense of a desire and a longing for that joy, for that delight. I can't help but see these magi in this place of spiritual darkness and distant from God and being in this weary world, and then they see this dazzling, sparkling, radiating, pulsating reality, and they're drawn to it. it just captures the essence of that delight that they're longing for, that joy so they follow it. See, there's a a deep truth that's captured here in the star about the nature of joy and our searching for it. First, God is joy. God's perfect love, perfect delights, and He's overflowing with that. God Himself is joy. Hear this clearly. Joy is not something we create and then we kind of fabricate it so that we all have this thing called joy that we can all run after as human beings. Joy is a reality that's defined by God and it's found in Him. It's something we're created for and we're invited back into it. So God is joy. He made us to know that joy in Him in a reciprocal way. And here's the thing. That means that the joy we are searching for is that joy and to know it again. Now, that joy specifically is a joy that is found in both delighting in God. Because here's the thing, especially if you're a Christian here this morning, you know, we all know, Christians know, religious people know, they should worship God, they should delight in God. But the art part of that is God's inviting us into a relationship with him so that we would be delighted in as his children, right? Like, it's not you're invited into my delight and into this kind of relationship here so that you might know me, but then, oh, but you're just, you're just a maggot. But come on in. Thanks for the invite, Right? No, what Scripture presents is that's meant to be a reciprocal joy that we delight in God, but then also God delights in us as his children. And see, here's the thing. That essence of having, and here's the thing, having that kind of heavenly affirmation, seeing the smile of God on you to experience that from your heavenly Father, that, that, having that is the essence of joy. And without it, you will go searching for it in so many ways in this world, as we'll see in a moment. I wanted to kind of capture a picture of maybe what this, what this looks like. Because in a moment, we're going to talk about what happens when we don't have that affirmation and how do we go f- trying to find it. But then also, after that, how do we rightly find that affirmation? What does that even mean? Is this some kind of woo-woo new age stuff? Like, what, what does that mean? Ground that for me. Before going go in there, I, I, I couldn't help but This picture has always made me think of it. I, my daughter is now four, but this is when she was a baby. So uh, preachers show you pictures of their babies for two reasons. One, so you'll like me. Uh, and then two, uh, f- because this captures something, which is, there, I don't know what it is, but I remember as my children, as they're, they're just babies, that just, this just unabashed joy, right? And, and what I mean by, like, there's that heavenly affirmation, I think that what's going on here is this, is this is what we all deep down in our souls desire, that there's this kind of like the heavens actually smile on us in this way that there's actually that God looks on us and he delights in us and that there's actually this like smile of heaven that comes towards us rather than just folded arms and scoffing. And our lives are driven by a desire to have that heavenly affirmation. There's a reason why it gives us great joy. Now, before we can talk about how do we find that, what does that look like? We have to talk about what happens, what, what does it look like to pursue it in a way that, because if we don't have that affirmation, we're going to pursue it in all kinds of ways that cause more weariness and more chaos. Uh, so, the path of Herod. Uh, again, when you go back to verse 1, it says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Notice how that's phrased. So, it opens with now. Now. So understand this as the the narrative is transitioning. He's saying, okay, we told you about Jesus, the prophecies of his birth. Now understand this, reader. These are the days of Herod. It's defining it as these are this is the claim on the world during these days that this is the established tyranny and reign of Herod. Now, this Herod was Herod the Great. Here's a beautiful picture of him. Right? There it is. Yep, there it is. Look at those locks. I always wish I was born before, like, you know, photography, because then you'd have, like, artists, like, do a rendering of you. Like, no, make me more beautiful. Give me longer hair, right? Make my ears smaller, all these things. Anyways, those are my insecurities. So, uh, but here's the (laughs) thing. Speaking of insecurity, if he's great, now you're all looking at my ears, uh, but if he's, if he's so great, so he's known as Herod the Great, and there's a reason for that. He was, He was known for all these great accomplishments. You can still go to Jerusalem to this day and you can find plaques to him. He's legendary. But if he's so great, why is he so insecure about the message of a baby being born? Isn't that interesting? A little background on Herod. He reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. The dating here is probably around 6 B.C. So this is probably about two years before the end of Herod's reign. In other words, he's well-established in his reign. He's well-established with the, 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 uh, his, his resume and, and his, what he's known for. This is why these are the days of Herod. Now, Herod the Great was known, the best word we can put is ruthless. Ruthless. Uh, he wasn't the kind of, like, stern King, who, you know, kind of like throws the kids in the deep end of the pool so that they learn how to swim for themselves. Ruthless, I mean, he threw them in the deep end of the pool so he could teach himself CPR. Like, this guy was incredibly ruthless. And so we have a list of all the things that, his, that Josephus, the Jewish historian, reported about him. And this is what it says. It says, a madman who murdered his own family and a great many rabbis. The evil genius of the Judean nation prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. Bodyguards numbered 2,000 at all times. 2,000 bodyguards at all times. It's a little insecure. (laughs) Executed several family members, including at least one wife, sent several wives and children into exile. Was so concerned no one would mourn his death that he commanded a large group of distinguished men to come to Jericho, where he died, and gave an order that they should be killed at the time of his death so that the displays of grief that he craved would take place. His children, thankfully, did not follow through on his wishes. So literally when he knew he was going to die on his deathbed, he said, invite all the well-known men, all the ones who were respected to come here, and then they would kill them so that right when he died, so that everyone would be crying. Lastly, the greatest builder in Jewish history. Known for buildings to the heavens. He was known for the temple. He was known for aqueducts, lots of innovations of that time that really changed the world and the ability to move to, towards urbanization. But he's a very complex figure. Like I was thinking in my mind, I was like, he's like Dwight Eisenhower with like you know like all the highway system and everything, and like Steve Jobs with like some of the innovation, and then like but then with like a little bit of Jeffrey Dahmer rolled in on top, right? Like he's like a combination of all of these. And so, how do we, you know, what what drove him? Like, what's going on in this guy? There's something incessant that seemed to drive this man and his craving for power and authority. I think it's plausible that there's something that happened right before he became the king that connects with why he was so provoked by this star. Uh, about 40 years before he became king, well, before this scene, so right before he became king, uh, the guy who had been known as, like, the the George Washington, or the Abraham Lincoln of all the Roman leaders, Julius Caesar. At Julius Caesar's death, I think it was around 42 BC, at his funeral, all of a sudden, a comet appeared in the sky. It's known as Caesar's Comet, most likely the mo- the, or usually called the most famous comet of antiquity. And as this comet went up in the sky, it stayed in the sky for the whole week during his funeral. And because of this heavenly affirmation, when this man died... That all the people began to say, he's a god. He's significant. Look what a great man he is. Now the divine is saying he is a god, and so they began to worship him, and they erected temples to him, and they said, this is now the gold standard. This is where freedom and joy will come from. This kind of leader, and even to his day, these the the coins in the area for leaders would have this on the back side. What is that? A star, a comet, a heavenly sign. So you can imagine that Herod in his day, his reign. He's this man who's trying to do all these things because in the midst of it, the idea is that the heavens will affirm any kind of great man. The heavens will affirm and, and, and make known that he is great and it, it won't, and in the midst of it, he's in a place where over and over again, they have these signs all around the culture saying that it will happen with some kind of a comet or some kind of celestial event that will affirm their greatness. In other words, While Herod is so insecure about this star, because while Herod had spent his entire life building buildings to the heavens, the heavens had never affirmed him like this. And so here's the thing, what Herod does, the path of Herod, is not finding your identity or your sense of self or however you want to put it in this, your joy in this, and having an actual affirmation from outside you, but actually finding it through your achievements. And you could say, not just achievements, that's Herod's thing. There are other ways that we try to essentially find that heavenly affirmation. Try to find it in achievements. We try to find it in success. We try to find it in athletics. We try to find it in academics and being the most intelligent person. We try to find it in attractiveness, on and on and on. We know these things. But all of us try to find, ultimately, that deep sense of affirmation. I would say just that inner sense that we're enough that we're right and righteous. And we try to find it in all these ways. It's the path of Herod. But the problem is, it's not able to satisfy it. Herod built towers to the heavens, yet the heavens never affirmed him like that. Now, here's what happens with it. Whenever we try to find that sense of affirmation through essentially things in this world, Instead of finding that vertical affirmation from God, we try to find it in horizontal things. What happens is we begin then anyone around us, like what Herod does here, anyone around us who can compete with us or becomes a threat to our standing on the pedestal of being the best because that's where we find our identity, they become a threat. See, see what happens is when we find our identity in these things, in our affirmation in these things, is one, here's the issue, you can lose them. You can lose that thing. Uh, one day you will no longer be the most athletic. You might not be the most successful one day. Somebody might get that promotion over you. You might not be the most intelligent or know all the things. I got into, if any of you have heard of that chat, G, whatever, the new AI bot should freak you out. But I got into an argument with it the other night, and it made me feel so dumb. Um, it's like, here we go. Uh, there, there, anything that you find in, you can lose it. Uh, and here's the thing, if, if you can lose it, then that means one of two things will happen. Either on one hand, if you lose that thing, it will make life not worth living. And you'll despair. Or because of your despairing, here's the other thing that you'll do in response, is you'll try to eliminate the threat. You'll try to eliminate it in many, many ways. You could gossip about the person, undercut the person, or just seethe and rage in your own soul with Bitterness. This is why what immediately happens when Herod hears about the star, because he sees that Jesus is getting that divine affirmation, the affirmation he never received, and he wants it. And so he sees Jesus as a threat, so he goes to eliminate him. This is why he says he asks them to ascertain when the star came and whatnot. And then it says then in chapter later on, down in verse 13, This is why it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. To what? Destroy him. Eliminate him. There's a quote from a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. He says this. He says, Any identity that is achieved rather than received is ultimately exclusionary. What he means by that is that if you can achieve it and you're able to do it in your own strength, then that means you can lose it, which means that when it's threatened, you will protect it. And one of the things that's going on here, in other words, is that this is all vying for that affirmation. This is all vying for that affirmation that they're lacking and so much of the weariness of this world and so much of what goes on in our lives and why we can't find that affirmation in God is because we're constantly... Seeking to protect that affirmation and things in this world. So, you know, we could, we could think about things in terms of, okay, that was Herod. Herod's a bad guy, but we have to look in the mirror. The way you can know you're on the path of the Herod or things like this. How do you respond when essentially whatever makes you the great is threatened? Uh, let's be honest. We all have something that in our sphere, our little circle, It gives us a sense of the great. It could be a talent. It could be a skill. It could be something just about us. that. But there's a sense of this is what defines me. This is what makes me great. And the problem is when that thing becomes to define you completely, what happens when that thing is threatened? You're always the one who sets the bell curve, and now someone else sets the bell curve on the exam. You're always the first one in line. Now you're not the first one in line. You were always the one that jumped the highest. No, you're no longer the one that jumped the highest. You're always the one who was most successful and had the best car and had the biggest house. Whatever it might be, there's something that makes you the great. And look at what happens when it's threatened. What robs us of joy is pursuing affirmation in the path of the Herod. Seeking to find that affirmation in horizontal things when in fact, actually, the whole time we're looking for that vertical affirmation. So the question becomes how do we find it? How do we find it? Uh, So, lastly, the path of the Magi. Again, it says, Behold, the Magi, looky, looky, the Magi, they're here. The Magi represent, they're called wise men because they seek God wisely. They seek God wisely. As I mentioned earlier, we don't know much about them, but we know they're pagan priests from Babylon. And again, the irony is that that's that place of spiritual exile, that place of darkness. That place where they're using divination and astrology. And one of the interesting things here is there's this ambiguity in the text. Because can you imagine, I I know the Bible wasn't in a book at this point. There weren't codices invented yet. But imagine flipping the pages from the Old Testament now to the beginning of the New Testament. And you have this story. And the first people who are invited to to come near the god are the ones who are usually banished in the old testament through practicing astrology and divination and all these things. But it seems that God uses these things in order to draw them from the nations. And we see something here because it's a picture of how all of us come from different backgrounds. But what he's saying, no matter, even if you are the farthest and you think you are the most lost, farthest, oh, no, if you knew what I've done, then God would never be interested in me. Whatever the thing is, God says, you cannot be far enough. The Magi represent those who are farthest away, and he says, come. And all the things that you've been striving and searching for God and trying to make it work in your life and find that joy, he says, I'll use whatever that is. The end of that road points ultimately to me. So he uses it to call them. See, the Magi are like everyone. They're searching for that joy, that transcendent thing. But unlike everyone, they find it. So what's the path they follow? What's the path they follow? Uh, there are a few interesting details here in the text. When we come back to this star. Because the Magi, they see this star, and they're practicing astrology. And uh, by the way, this isn't kind of like, it's not like, hey, I practice astrology, because look, the Bible, the Magi do it. Um, this is a one-time thing that God used to draw them. And they're, they're looking up to the stars. And I can imagine that one thing with these men is, uh, a first thing is, Imagine all these magi, all these priests, they're charting the stars, and they're just like, oh, that's interesting, that connects to that, that connects to that, that connects to that, that connects to the guy. What they did was they actually saw beyond just the connections, these three men. And they saw not just kind of this, like, I can make connect the dots, and look, I'm, I'm good at astrology, and I can say something and, and connect this. But in fact, they saw beyond it to see that there was something there that God was calling them to. I'll say this. One of the first things in actually finding joy in God is not playing games where you just play connect the dots with God, but you actually pursue him. Uh, I've shared this before. Uh, I just When I repeat things, I don't like to bore you with it. But I remember when I was in um, seminary, which is where you get trained to become a pastor, or really, really arrogant. Anyways, but I was being trained, and I remember one day God really just impressed upon me as I was studying Scripture, and I was really good, like, you know, like, connection here, connection there, connection there. And, and God, this picture of, like, the stars in the heavens and saying, you're really good at drawing the constellation and connecting the dots, like your theology and all those things. But do you ever just pause and actually worship the one who hung those stars there? And there's something here with these magi in the first step for us in actually pursuing God. Here be my question. Are you, are you just pursuing God just to connect the dots and have something interesting to share at dinner? Or are you, connecting, are, are you actually saying when God's connecting the dots to go, wow, God is saying here, I'm inviting you to know me, not just things about me, but to know me. And then what they do when they, when they go after and they begin following him and they begin searching and following the star, and, and there are all these things in the text where it's interesting what's really going on here. And scholars debate on what's going on with the star because there's these interesting things. Like it says, the star rose. Now, I'm no astronomer again, but stars I wouldn't describe as rising, right? Like I don't wake up and then I'm like, see that star, right? Like reading rainbow, okay, but that's about it. Like stars don't move through the sky, they're stationary. So this has always been something that's perplexed scholars. And then another thing is that it seems that the magi were traveling for probably up to two years because Herod says, kill all the young males under two years of age, that's going to be next week, because uh, because he knows that they've been following that entire time. So this has been in the sky for a while. And, and then so scholars debate on what's really the nature of the star and what's going on here. Some say that this is actually where I think it was Juniper and Venus, they, Jupiter, Juniper, Jupiter and Venus, that they kind of coalesce around this star and all of a sudden they're walking and it's like, bing, right, in the sky. But others actually think because the, the Greek word for star is actually ambiguous. It's not like the normal word for star, it's kind of like a celestial body, like a planet or something. And so, what some have said is that perhaps this might even be a comet in fact, what happened was they were following this. There's a lot. There are books that have been released on this lately where they, they're pretty sure this might have been a comet or, or some kind of confluence of the, of the plants, but here's what it, what it boils down to. It boils down to that they're traveling in the darkness, and as they're traveling in the darkness, I remember we used to live in Southern California, and we'd drive up to Vegas every now and then, not because we did anything in Vegas. We just had to be there, but we drive up to Vegas through the desert, the high desert, and it was just pitch black, no lights as far as you can see, up to 15 freeways. And all of a sudden, there would just be this like, boom, where there were like all these like casino and there'd be all these arrows like golden nugget casino here, right? Turn here, right? And there's just all these lights. And what happens here is they're, they're going throughout the desert in this darkness and they're searching all of this time. And all of a sudden, there's just this boom, here it is. And like an arrow pointing down in this place. And what God is doing here is he's using the heavens and he's using this delight that he has, and he's proclaiming, this is the one. Everything you've been searching for is found in this one. So they've been searching through all the gods of antiquity, through all the religious movements. And what they found here is God saying, no, this is the one who joy is found in. And he's right here. Everything you've been looking for, it's found in him. So first, we have to actually be looking for God. And the second thing is we find it in Jesus. This is why a chapter later in Matthew's gospel, as soon as Jesus begins his ministry, now he's an adult, fast forward. And as soon as he begins it, he gives this picture of, he says, in me, it's the first sign of his baptism. And there's significance here. We sometimes as Christians read this and move right on. But what happens is you could say the band is back together again. The father, what happens? I'll read it here. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What happens there is that that God who is delight, who is love, he says, the Father says, This is my Son. And the Spirit's descending, and it's like they're back together. And it's like, This is the one who brings that joy. He's come into the world, and you can find it in him. It's not a small thing. Jesus is restoring to us that original delight and that original joy and that original life that we had long lost. And these magi, when they respond, you can, like, they seem to have just left everything. Like, they finally found this object of their joy. Like, I love that they, one, they traveled for almost probably two years. You can imagine that every, like, when they left the other magi off, they're like, good luck with that one, right? Right? And then when they're traveling, they're staying at the inns in different places and they're telling people what they're searching for, but they found, they're going, there's something here. And I even love that. It's like, they're like, let's give everything we, like, let's give gifts. And one guy's like, I got a gold brick. And the other one's like, ah, I got my wife's essential oils. I've got some frankincense. And they're like, that's worth more than gold, dude. Like, bring it, right? And so they bring all their gifts. What this represents is they're bringing all of their treasure. And they're saying everything pales in comparison to him. In other words, I finally found something that all of my successes and accolades and my CV and the promotions and the stuff and the acquisitions and the, the likes on social media, whatever it is for you. He's saying, I finally found something that... All of that pales in comparison to. I found the object. I found the one. I found the one who that joy is found in. And his name is Jesus. So they search for him. But it's not only just that they go and they find him. But also that there's that invitation to him. To know him. Again, what happens here is not that these pagan priests come and they come to the door of the manger and you can imagine a voice from the heavens. If you can almost imagine like Old Testament where it's like this, like, why are you here? You're unholy. Get out of here. There's this complete welcoming. How is that possible? Because here's something we have to grapple with when we start talking about how is it that God could actually invite us to himself The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not two separate gods. It's one God. He is a God who is delight, who is love, who is holy, and he is jealous for us to be invited back into the fullness of that reality and it not be overrun with all of our Herod-like agendas. And so we have a God who is holy, who purifies and invites in, but at the same time, invites us in with his grace. How is that possible? Well, we need a reign where it's no longer the days of Herod, but it's the days of Jesus. And the way he does this is in verse 6. He says, you, O Bethlehem, this is the prophecy, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, what happens is Jesus inaugurates a new reality. He brings a new kind of kingdom. He brings a new kind of reign. It's no longer a world of weariness, but a world of rejoicing. And he says, the way that that comes is that I came into the world, and I'm I'm not a king like Herod who succeeds by military conquest, but by heart conquest. Um, This is why he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And with that, he's not like Herod, a king who reigns through silencing others, but he's a king who went to the cross and was silenced on our behalf. It says in Isaiah 53 that and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why does Jesus do this? Jesus does this because he says on the cross, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the perfect justice and holiness of God together with the grace of God by laying down my life and becoming the sacrifice for your sins so that might take away the penalty and you might be able to be made righteous. And what happens then is you become one with me. See, what, what often we think is, well, Either we think, we look at all the injustice around us, and then we also look at the injustice within us, our sin, the death that we cause through our lives. And then we look at all the injustice around us, and what we could do is say, yeah, God, punish that. But then at some point, either we have to be arrogant to not be willing to look at that evil resides in us as well. And then we have to either become prideful, or we have to despair eventually when we realize that's in us, and we realize there's just nothing but justice. Uh, or, and that, that's a real thing, that must, we must have justice. Uh, or, at the same time, we could say it's just all grace, but then we know at the end of the day it's just sentimentality and it doesn't deal with any of the evil that we actually know is there. Only in Jesus Christ do you get both of those together. Only in, the, in Jesus Christ, who before he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven, he ascends to a, to a cross. And what he says is, I am God who's come into your flesh, into your, into your mode of existence in order to take on your rebellion, to take on all the Herod inside of you, and to take it on a cross and to pay for your sins. And now then, by faith, you can look to me and follow me and find life in me. And what he says is, if you look to me by faith and you say, when I see Jesus on the cross, that's me that puts him there. That's what's wrong in the world. That's what's wrong in me. And only by his sacrifice and his forgiveness can I find life. What Jesus says is, if you'll look to me in that way, then by faith, you'll become one with me. And when you become one with me, then God looks at you, and he looks at you like he looks at me. And he looks at you and says, you are righteous. You are enough. You are my child. Come in. See, that model why Jesus is baptized, and he says, you also be baptized, is because At the core of the message that Jesus gives us of his redemption, of his reign, is he says, if you're of my people and you follow me, and what it means is you acknowledge that I must die and go into the waters of judgment. But if I'm one with Jesus, then I rise again and I conquer the grave. I become one with him. But here's, it's not just you leave behind your guilt, but that the Father from the heavens declares you his child and he delights in you as he delights in his son. In other words, the only way that you can have that heavenly affirmation and that delight is if you are one with Jesus Christ. And so what we have here, and Matthew is saying, is do you know Jesus? Are you one with him? Have you by faith looked to him, and do you follow him? Because if you follow him, not only will he remove your guilt, will he remove your shame, but also he will lead you into a life of joy and fellowship with God that only gets better as each chapter gets better than the last for all of eternity, as C.S. Lewis says. So the question is today, do you know Jesus in that way? Let me end with this, because I know that this abstract idea of, like, God delighting in us, let me give you a picture of this, why, why this is so significant. Uh, I, when I was taking that picture of, of Clara, there it is again. I, uh, I actually, so I tried to find them, but I think Google Photos deleted all of them because they were so ugly. Um, they were all pictures of my child. I just call my child, I didn't call my child ugly. Anyways, so... My child was just, you know when like a car, you know when like a child cries, like it's like a car starting, like trying to start like, <coughs> right? Like every time I would try to take a picture, she would go, <coughs> and it was like that picture, you know, where I was like, ah, and I was like, then she was like, ah, and, I was like ah, and she was like, <coughs> right? I, I could never capture it. I had like 10 pictures. I was like, why? I want to capture this on film because I would always have this moment with her. And, and I was sitting there going, why can't I capture this joy that she has? And all of a sudden it hit me. clearest thing. See, we often think that joy is just something that's like sourced in some people and other people don't have it. And I thought, you know, like babies, they just have this joy and so it just bubbles out of them. I want to see that joy and enjoy it. But what I realized was it's not actually, her joy is not just joy within herself. Her, Her joy is a response to her father's joy. See, what I realized was that every time I would move the camera and it would eclipse my gaze, my smile, she would (laughs) immediately, she would be troubled. But as soon as I removed the camera, then she could see my gaze and in response, there was delight, reciprocal joy. And see, what's happening here in this text is what it's saying is that you are not made to live your life, so often the things that we're pursuing and trying to find that affirmation through whatever way we do in this life, it's essentially eclipsing our Father's gaze, and it's de- it troubles us deeply. And often, and what we what is being we're invited to here, is to put those things down whatever those things are, to put them down, to lay them at the feet of Jesus, just like the gold and the frankincense in them are, and lay them there and say, I found something so much better, and to delight and find your ultimate affirmation, your identity, your sense of self, and the gaze of your Father as he gazes at you and sees you in Jesus Christ. That's where joy is found. That's the joy you were made for. That's the joy that our weary world searches for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this deep reality that we have here, that on one hand, we know that you are a God of of justice and a God of demanding worship of yourself and desiring that worship and delight in you. But also, Lord, you are a God who delights and pours out your love on us. And Lord, don't let us pull those two apart, but let us see how those two come together in Jesus. Would these be the days of... Jesus Christ, in our lives, in our souls, may we find joy in you. Lord, wherever anyone in this room is coming from, Lord, would you speak to them where they're at? In our pursuits, in the, on the path of like Herod, wherever we're at in that journey as the Magi, Lord, would you point us to finding that joy ultimately in Christ? we put down just the anger and bitterness of trying to find the broken ways of trying to find that affirmation that we're meant to find in you through things of this world. And Lord, would you help us find it in your son? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.